Brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, John, and to all our <clears throat> readers. Um, it is quite a long passage. Uh, this morning there's uh, quite a lot to, um, to get through, but lots to challenge and encourage us this morning. But I do hope you've had a good breakfast and, and you're full of energy. Uh, and thinking about breakfast, we were away with some friends uh, last weekend, and there was great excitement one morning because uh, one of our friends had brought a tub of Marmite. Okay, so not a jar, not a little jar, not even a big jar, but a tub of Marmite, uh, and, it, and it was massive, but it also had these flexible plastic sides, um, and, uh, and that meant that you could scrape out the last bits. Okay, so if you've had that frustration of not being able to get the last little bit out of the Marmite jar, um, then, uh, then this is the answer. Uh, and there was just looks of amazement from people. Okay, the fact that we put men on the moon 60 years ago, and, uh, but tubs of Marmite are just, just much more incredible than that. But obviously for some people in the room, they don't care, do they? Yeah? If it's a small jar, <clears throat> if it's a big jar of Marmite, even if it's a tub of Marmite, it doesn't matter because they just hate Marmite. Okay, um, and for, uh, let us, uh, let's turn to think about John chapter 7, and I've called this talk, Jesus, the divisive life giver, the divisive life giver, uh, and I guess that kind of language might su- surprise some people in our society. We're heading into another election, and we know that there are some politicians who are divisive. We know that there are maybe some people in our workplace, maybe even our, in our families, who are divisive individuals. Marmite. Marmite is divisive, and Marmite has made a whole uh, advertising campaign over decades on the basis that it is divisive. But lots of people in our society quite like keeping Jesus to simply be a person who taught us to love each other and is sometimes pictured as a baby being held by its mother at Christmas and sometimes pictured as a man holding a lamb for some reason. But when pushed a bit harder with a truer, fuller picture of Jesus, it turns out he does divide people. He does divide people. And that's what we're going to see in John chapter 7. It's not a a new thing. It was happening 2,000 years ago. And then in the second half, we're going to see some wonderfully refreshing good news about Jesus offering true life. Uh, So first, let's just see how Jesus divides people. I wonder if you spotted that as that was being read. There are many different groups, many different ways in which Jesus is opposed in this passage, in which people say no to Jesus. Uh, And we see that right at the start. We see how serious it is. Verse 1 says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So this isn't a mild disagreement. Okay? This isn't a disagreement about Marmite. This is Jesus uh, dividing people so clearly and being rejected so clearly that some people want to kill him. Verses two to four, Jesus' brothers want to go to Jerusalem to the big feast because it will help his PR. And they're saying to Jesus, look Jesus, why don't you go where there are lots of people? Why don't you go and make a name for yourself, be in the spotlight? Why not go and do some miracles and then surely people will love you? And yet they've totally understood, misunderstood Jesus' mission. It sounds like they're on Jesus' side, but actually they don't really believe in who he says he is. And we see that in verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus' own brothers are rejecting him at this stage. And so we can, we can assume from what we see in the rest of the Gospels that Mary, his mother, um, believes in him. But Jesus' brothers don't. And don't we see that today? Even families divided over who Jesus is. Maybe that's your experience. 
There's you and maybe some other people in your family who believe in Jesus. And, and, and for you, he is everything. He is your, your, how, uh, how you're thinking about eternity, how you're thinking about life, how you're making decisions. And there are others in your family who absolutely are saying no to him. Jesus says he's going to, uh, not going to go to Jerusalem as they suggest, but he does go later in secret. And clearly, he's a topic of conversation. So if you look down at verses 12 and 13, clearly, uh, when he arrives, um, if the Jewish authorities uh, had a kind of an Interpol's most wanted list, Jesus would be there right at the top. Verse 12 and 13, people are talking about him, muttering about him. Some people like him, other people don't trust him, and they think that what he says are lies. And then Jesus starts speaking to different groups, and we see some of the reasons why they reject him. Look down to verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus says, You know God's good law that is given to Moses, but you don't keep it. And you know what? Coming to me, believing in me, means repenting of your sin. It means turning away from the way you are living your life and choosing to do God's will. And by doing that, you will see who I am and the truth of who I am. And Jesus' challenge to them is that they don't want to do that. Isn't that true of so many people today? They're really happy thinking of Jesus as someone who tells us to love others even though actually when it comes to it, uh, we'd much prefer to be selfish. We don't really want to love our neighbour. But on a general, vague level, people are happy with with Jesus' teaching on caring for other people. People go, yeah, thumbs up, Jesus. But when Jesus says things about relationships or money or work or obeying authorities or alcohol or lots of other things, people start backing away. The heat's on and they don't like it. They're not so sure about this Jesus anymore. That is moral rejection of Jesus. Moral rejection. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus exposes the fact that the crowds are happier sticking with their religious ceremonies than turning to him. Uh, So verse 23, Jesus, it says, Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances but instead judged correctly. Uh, Do you remember in John chapter five, looking at it uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Jesus um, heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, uh, but he does it on the Sabbath. Sabbath law has been broken, uh, and, and, and they're angry about this, and Jesus calls them out on it, and he says, look, when you circumcise a boy, you're supposed to do that on the eighth day, and if that falls on the Sabbath, then you'll break the Sabbath law for that ceremony. But when I come along and I heal a man, you're really angry. You're missing the deeper purpose of the Sabbath, which was to point to God's eternal rest and to God bringing wholeness. They're very happy with their ceremony. They're not very happy with Jesus. Isn't that the same today? People can reject Jesus while they are at the same time so bound up in religious things. So you can have people who, who go to a church every week, maybe even lead a church. People who haven't missed a communion service in years. People who are on every rotor going. Every part of their religious CV is ticked off. And yet when Jesus is in their midst, they reject him. It's religious rejection. 
Then look down to verse 25 to 31. Some people question and reject him because they don't believe the evidence for him stacks up. I guess they would think of this as intellectual arguments. Verse 27, they say, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no more will know where he is from. And then down to verse 41, where it's a similar kind of argument. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And so they're acting as judges and juries over Jesus. And they are saying, look, Jesus, we've looked at your evidence. We've thought this through. We've used our our brains. And we don't think you're the genuine article. We don't think it stacks up. So it's a no from us. Because, for example, you come from Galilee, not from Bethlehem. And we want to scream at them, haven't you ever been to a nativity play? What was your primary school doing when you were growing up? Haven't you even watched any of the films, the nativity films, even if they're rubbish? Because Jesus does come from Bethlehem. And so do you see what they're doing? They're forming these intellectual arguments to say to Jesus, sorry Jesus, but we don't think you are who you say you are. And their thinking is flawed. It's based on flawed evidence. And isn't it the same today? Have you had one of those conversations with people um, where, where you're talking to them and you're thinking about the questions they've got and sometimes they're genuine points but sometimes people make assertions about science or about the historicity of the Bible and they've never looked into it. So many people make a judgment about Jesus, they've never looked at the original source material, one of those gospels that we've got at the back that you can take at the end. It's intellectual rejection. Here's a fourth kind of rejection. Uh, go back to verse 13. I know we're jumping around. I apologize for that. Verse 13, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And then jump down to verse 50. Nicodemus, do you remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? says that to the Pharisees. Jesus is rejected simply by people not engaging with him. Verse 13, people are scared to talk about him because the authorities have clearly given the impression Jesus is not a topic for conversation. Don't talk about Jesus. Verse 50, the authorities themselves don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to listen to who Jesus is. And I wonder if that is something that's really prevalent in our society today. You've got Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and people like that who are attacking Christianity. But actually, there's much more of a general vibe that we just don't talk about Jesus. Do you remember Alistair Campbell uh, when Tony Blair was being interviewed a few years ago? And uh, the interviewer started asking Tony Blair about Christian things. And Alistair Campbell, his, um, his press secretary, PR person, stepped in and said, we don't do God. We don't talk about God. Maybe that is your experience at work. Maybe tomorrow when you're going to work, um, you get to lunchtime and you're chatting to uh, colleagues and you can talk about the rugby. You can have an English person there. You can have a South African. You can have a New Zealander. You can have a Welsh person. You can disagree. You can talk about Bake Off, which my life group seems to be obsessed about. You can talk about that. Even more risky than Bake Off, Brexit. You can talk about Brexit if you want. But talk about Jesus? No. Because there's just this general sense we don't talk about that. Maybe you're a, a, a teenager, maybe you're in, in Fusion, or maybe JF, a teenager, and you talk to your mates about everything, but not Jesus. I wonder if that is a really big way in which Jesus is rejected in our society 
today. We can talk about him here this morning, but out there, there's a general feeling we don't talk about him. Moral rejection, religious rejection, intellectual rejection, silent rejection. And finally, there's one big reason why Jesus is rejected. Did you spot what Jesus said in verse 7? Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Ultimately, Jesus is rejected because people are sinners. And in our natural heart state, without God's gracious work of his spirit, we don't want Jesus exposing our sin and we don't want Jesus to be our king. That's the basic problem, isn't it? And the result of that is the world hates him so much, he wants to kill him. And so Dick Lucas, uh, I heard Dick Lucas, a preacher, once say, one of the things the cross shows us is that given half a chance, humanity will murder its creator. That's what the cross shows us. Given half a chance, humanity will murder its creator. And so one of the things it's good to pray for for non-Christians is that is that they would be convicted of their sin. They would see their sin and their need for a saviour because the good news that we're about to talk about only makes sense in the context of the bad news. It's a reminder as well that when we talk about people becoming Christians, that is a supernatural thing that is happening. We can do everything we can. We can talk, we can run events, we can do lots of things. But ultimately, God's spirit needs to turn people's hearts to repent and believe. Uh, it's worth spotting as we finish this section that um, there's, there's loads of rejection, there's loads of opposition, but there are some who believe. Even as some are trying to kill Jesus, others are turning to follow him. Verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Verse 46, some of the temple guards seem to have seen the truth in what Jesus says. And even in even Jesus' brothers, later on in, in Acts, we find out that, um, that some of them have become Christians. And so I guess we can summarize this by looking at verse 43, where John says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Many reject him, but some believe. And, and it made me think this week about um, my dad. My dad was a pastor, pastor of um, lots of churches, kind of groups of churches, much smaller than this. Um, and I remember him uh, being in, in Plymouth, leading a church in Plymouth, and it was really, really hard. And I remember him and my mum going out and going around um, various uh, doors, knocking on doors, hundreds and hundreds of doors, handing out flyers for a children's holiday club, just like we do here, um, and, and talking to people and going out and even going out into the market and running a little stall and things like that. And at the end of all of that, they, ha- they saw no conversions. So no fruit. I remember, I was only six at the time, but I remember them coming in day after day after day, having spent hours doing this. No fruits. But I also remember them, and I was talking to my um, mum about this last night. I remember that having seen all that rejection and opposition and apathy, they could also tell you about a church that they pastored uh, in the Welsh Valleys that my dad was the pastor of. Really small church, so small in fact. It only had six people when they arrived, uh, and there was talk about them just closing the doors. But, one, but there were an older couple there who'd been praying for many, many decades. And that church was faithful. And one person became a Christian, then another one, then another one. And gradually they brought their families in. And there was a point where they baptized 11 people in one day. 11 people in one day. A church that size, that is massive, isn't it? And do you know what? There are loads of people here this morning who can say, a Christian was faithful and reached out to me with the good news about Jesus. Maybe it was in the children's work. Maybe in, in, in YPF. 
Maybe it was in an elderly people's ministry. But someone reached out and that person might have been rejected 10 times, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times before. They might have been praying for decades, but they kept going, they kept speaking, they kept praying. And I'm so glad they did because this morning I know Jesus. Many reject, some believe. Uh, Let's look at our second point from this chapter, the life-giving Jesus. And here's our big question, I guess, at this stage. Is it worth following Jesus? Is it actually worth following Jesus? And that's a fair question, isn't it? Because given everything we've heard about the rejection and opposition faced, and and given that the world seems to be against him, and given that he tells us in other places we're going to experience the same thing, is it worth following him? Maybe you're someone who's in fusion here this morning. And you've been brought along by your, by your parents or someone else. And you've been coming for a long time. And you sang those words earlier. I, I want to be like Jesus, to walk and talk like Jesus. I want to be like one who follows him. And now you're thinking, I'm not so sure about this. Sounds like quite a tough gig. And it sounds like lots of my friends are not going to be following him. Maybe you're someone here this morning who's, who's not a Christian. You're trying to work it all out. You come along this morning. It's brilliant to see you here. But you're thinking, do you know what, Sam? This isn't a great sales pitch being Jesus, for, for following Jesus. Okay, if you're on The Apprentice, you'll be fired at the end of the service, which would be fine because I don't work for the church, that's fine. Um, but the Christian life sounds hard. It sounds really hard. And it sounds like lots of people are not going to go for it. And maybe you're here this morning, you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for many, many years, but you are weary. You're weary of going through the motions. Uh, you're trying to follow God's good commands, but it's become a bit of a chore you can't remember quite why you're doing it. Uh, maybe you're just tired of speaking, keeping on speaking to people and praying for people and being pushed back. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Well, the Bible doesn't do false advertising. The Bible tells us it as it is. But also we're going to see, yes, Jesus is worth it because he is the life giver. And what could be more important than that? The way he puts it is striking. He says in verse 37, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And we don't really feel the force of that because um, we live in a modern Western world where there's um, running water on demand. And also we live in Britain where it rains all the time. Just hold a bucket outside your window and you get water. Um, So we don't really understand what it means to be dying of thirst. Um, But they would have at the time. Uh, And just to give us an inkling of this, uh, and this is going to be, this is a difficult story, this is a hard story, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, This is a news story about a guy called Dave Bichot, who was an American, he took part in an extreme outdoor survival trip, where participants are pushed to their limits. This is the report, it says, by day two in the blazing Utah desert, Dave Bichot was in bad shape, pale, racked by cramps, his speech slurred, the 29-year-old New Jersey man was desperate for water, and hallucinating so badly he mistook a tree for a person. After going roughly 10 hours without a drink in the 100 degree heat, he finally dropped dead of thirst, face down in the dirt, less than 100 yards from the goal. But Bichot was no solitary soul, lost and alone in the desert. He and 11 other hikers from various walks of life were being led by expert guides on a wilderness survival adventure designed to test their physical and mental toughness. And the guides, it turned out, were carrying emergency water on that torrid summer day, but he wasn't told it, he wasn't offered it, because they didn't want him to fail the course. Most of us have never experienced um, extreme thirst, but they would have in, in those days. 
Uh, And I guess when Jesus says, anyone who is thirsty, some people might have turned around and expected him to be holding uh, jars of water. But Jesus has something much more significant in mind. And this all takes place um, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the, mo- uh, one of the biggest feasts in the Jewish calendar. Uh, it takes place in late September or early October. And male Jews were required to be there. And so you'd, the, the population of Jerusalem would explode with these hundreds of thousands of people coming in. And it was a joyous celebration of God's provision, God's provision during the harvest. But also they looked back to the time of the Exodus when the Jews were in the wilderness and God provided for them then. And so for this eight-day festival, they stayed in tents, just like the Jews did when they were in the wilderness, which was like a massive religious Glastonbury (laughs) with a deeper meaning and less mud. And they remembered how God had provided for them. Do you remember in the book of Exodus how how it works? God rescues them. He brings them through the Red Sea and then he gives them manna from heaven but he also gives them water. In Exodus 17, the people go to Moses and they say, we're, we're dying of thirst. And God tells Moses, strike a rock and water flows out of it. And actually in the Old Testament, the prophets then saw an even deeper meaning behind this. Zechariah, for example, in Zechariah chapter 13, talks about a future end time feast of tabernacles where, where living water would flow out of Jerusalem to the whole world. And Isaiah talks about a day of salvation for the world, but his image is of the world being thirsty and the salvation being water. And so they've moved beyond physical thirst and water to something so much deeper. And all the Jews will have had all these things floating around in their heads when they are there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And it is in that context in which Jesus stands up. Verse 37 again, on the last and greatest day of the festival Jesus stood and said in a loud voice let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me as scripture has said rivers of living water will flow from within them by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified I'd imagine Jesus is standing up in the, the busiest part of Jerusalem around the temple area. So just imagine this room, but with another 1,500, 2,000 people in it. Everyone's milling around. People are making sacrifices. People are buying things. People are talking to each other. And Jesus stands and he says in a loud, clear voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That's an incredible thing to do on the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles because the Jews know that it's all about God's provision and the prophets have said one day there would be God offering living water. And Jesus is saying, yeah, and here I am. It's a bit like um, the London 2012 Olympics, if you remember that opening ceremony, Danny Boyle's opening ceremony. It's as if I was at that Olympic ceremony and, and all the nations of the world were there and you had the music and the pyrotechnics and the drama and the speeches. And just as it's coming to the end, I walk over and I take the microphone from the IOC president and I say in a clear voice, all of this, this whole thing, it's all about me. It's all pointing to me. That's what Jesus is doing here. Again, it's a really divisive thing to do, isn't it? Because the people watching have to work out whether it is all about him. 
Because if not, he is a madman or a liar. But if it is about him, then this is massive. Because Jesus is talking about real life, the long-promised living water. This living water is real life. It's life that comes from God and comes from knowing God. Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to this thing that I've got over here. He says, come to me and drink from me. And he says, if we believe in him, we will have the spirit within us. This is what the prophets were looking forward to. This is the day of salvation. This is where the water flows out to the whole world. And John says this will happen when Jesus is glorified, when he dies on that cross. There are points in the passage where the temple guards try to arrest Jesus, but they can't. He just slips through their fingers. But there'll be a time when they turn up to arrest Jesus and Jesus willingly says, take me. And he does it and then he dies on that cross because he knows for us to have true life, he must give up his life to pay for all our sin and rebellion. All the sin and the rebellion and the rejection and all those ways we've treated God and other people that are shown in this passage, we deserve death, but he will take that death on himself to give us life. And so this living water for Jesus isn't a way of just turning on a tap. It's incredibly costly for him. It will cost him his life. And I think John has that in mind when he then gets to chapter 19 of his book, and he includes a detail in the crucifixion scene. It's a real detail, a historical detail. But John says there's a soldier, a Roman soldier. He goes up to Jesus and he pushes a spear into Jesus' side. Do you remember what comes out? Blood and water flow out. Blood and water flow out. Living water for the whole world. This is the life we were made for. This is the life where we are filled with the Spirit of God, knowing God personally, adopted in the Son through the Spirit, having God in us, working in us. And it's not just for life for now, it is eternal life. It's not just a short-term drink, it's forever. It's the life that defeats death and will last forever. And this is the life that the whole world is longing for, even if they don't realise it. Even if they don't realise it. People search in so many different places. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson was um, obviously played fly half uh, in 2003 Rugby World Cup final. Uh, the last time England won the Rugby World Cup. Seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Um, and, was that too soon? Um, and Johnny Wilkinson said this afterwards. So he, he scored that drop goal um, last two minutes and he was England's hero. He's the most famous rugby player on the planet probably in the, that particular day. Great sporting hero. This is what he said. He said, by that point, I ticked off every goal I'd set myself. He'd gone, this is what I want to happen in my life. I managed to do it. That final was my Hollywood ending. I walked into the sunset after that game. The credits came up. And the next morning, I woke up, and I could not have felt more empty. He realized the credits come up on the film. But then the next film starts with a hero waking up in bed, and he's got a bad knee and no food in the fridge. And the journalist who was interviewing him said this, these stark words are all the more shocking when one considers the euphoria Wilkinson had brought so many people and the intense adulation and adoration in which he was held. Instead, the man widely held as one of England's greatest sporting heroes was overcome by an emptiness and an anguish that was in contrast to the joy he had brought so many. 
The world, like Dave Bichot in Utah, is dying of thirst. It is longing for something it can't seem to get hold of. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We need true life given to us by the life giver, the son of God who has come into this world to offer it to us. And I wonder if those of us who are Christians forget that sometimes. And we set ourselves really low expectations. I I certainly do. We, We don't enjoy this living water as much as we can. So here's the things that I'm often satisfied with. Satisfied with knowing that I'm saved. Great, I'm, I'm saved, sorted. I'm satisfied with, with, with knowing Jesus, but also playing with sin. I'm satisfied with being half-hearted with God. I'm satisfied with Jesus being in a box for kind of Sundays and some other bits and pieces, but not my whole life. I'm satisfied ignoring the Spirit's work in my life. And I'm happy to go looking to relationships or careers or possessions or popularity for other kinds of living water. But the thing is, It's not as if there are lots of different brands of living water. There is no other living water. There is nowhere else that offers ultimate life. And so if I look at my own heart and life, I think Jesus' description of knowing God isn't that often my day-to-day experience. And if that's us this week, then why don't we turn back and make our prayer, Jesus, show me more of you. Jesus, show me more of you. That's what we need. Maybe get that book that Danny was talking about earlier, Enjoying God. That's what we need. There's an old African hymn that puts it like this. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. And if we're in that situation where we're not investing in that relationship, then it's often not a surprise, is it, that we don't have a passion to show others this living water. Dave Bichot was dying of thirst in the Utah desert. And do you, do you remember that shock at the end of that article? He was surrounded by people who had water. And no one told him. And one way of thinking about mission and evangelism is simply thinking Chessington, London, Surrey, England, whatever, they are deserts. They are deserts and we found a spring of water. And we just want to tell people about it. And if you're here today... And you're wondering whether it's worth believing in Jesus, whether you're fusion age, uh, whether you're much older than that, whether this is your first Sunday or your hundredth Sunday. Is it worth believing in Jesus? Is it worth following him? Absolutely, because he is the only place you can find the living water. True, eternal, satisfying life that you were designed for. He made you, he knows what you need. There is nowhere else. There is no other water Everywhere else is death. So John chapter seven, why does Jesus come, uh, keep going in the face of such opposition? Why does he risk even more opposition by standing up in front of everyone on one of the busiest days of the year? He does it because he's come into the world to offer life, to offer living water. That's great news for all of us who are thirsty and who are surrounded by thirsty people. Let me pray for us.
in Jeremiah chapter two, God says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Father, forgive us. Forgive us if we are um, trusting in Jesus, but in the last week, we've turned to other cisterns, other places for living water, even though the, it is not living water, it's not fresh water, it's dirty water that doesn't offer life. Father, please draw us back this morning uh, to look into the face of your son again, to look to his cross, uh, to look to the place where life is offered. Uh, Father, for all of us, whatever situation we're in this morning, please would we come to the fountain, come to the water, come to life, come to Jesus, and also long to point others to that water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.